How many people do you know have over $3,000 to fill their first prescription? No one thinks that that is reasonable, but that's what we ask people to do today. This is a huge set of policy changes. It fixes so many problems with the Medicare benefit that affect consumers. That's Stacy Dusatzina, a professor in the Department of Health Policy at Vanderbilt University. Later, we'll hear more from her about what the pharma industry can expect with the new Inflation Reduction Act. I'm Teresa Carey, and this is The Top Line from Fierce Biotech, Fierce MedTech, and Fierce Pharma. Today, it's Friday, January 26th. Stick with us. We've got all the biopharma and medtech industry news you need. By now, we all know the name Elizabeth Holmes. She's the founder of Theranos, a blood testing startup. She was convicted of fraud and sentenced to more than 11 years. We saw the documentary and the Hulu special. Done, right? Well, wrong. Her story keeps going. She asked to stay out of prison while she appeals the fraud conviction. But prosecutors say she's a flight risk. As Andrea Park reports, in a court filing last week, they say Holmes purchased a one-way ticket to Mexico a year ago after being found guilty on four counts of defrauding investors. Holmes canceled her trip after prosecutors found out about it but they suggested in the filing that she could make another attempt before her prison sentence. They wrote, when her incentive to flee has never been higher. Holmes's legal team is working up an appeal that they say could result in a retrial. In a court filing of their own, they argued that Holmes is neither a flight risk nor a danger to her community, and so she should be allowed to remain free until the appeal is complete. A hearing on that request is scheduled for March 17th. Last week, the FDA rejected Eli Lilly's request for an accelerated review of donanumab, its Alzheimer's candidate. As Annalie Armstrong reports, the FDA wants more safety data after patients in the clinical trial have been taking the drug for a full year. Lilly says that the data will be ready later this year. But the FDA's decision to say no to Lilly for an accelerated approval still severely delays the drug's launch. And the race is on. Pharma companies are doing whatever they can to get even just a few months ahead of their peers. Just a few weeks ago, iSci and Biogen edged ahead when they got their second therapy approved. Does that mean that their medicines will win the race? Not necessarily. Their first approval was controversial. That was Agihelm. It launched in 2021, but never gained a foothold in the market. Agihelm was criticized for being too expensive and lacking strong efficacy data. And ISI and Biogen's second therapy, dubbed Lakembi, was greenlit under the accelerated approval pathway. That's the same pathway they had leveraged for Agihelm and that Eli Lilly was trying to use for donanumab. But the rules have changed for these fast-track Alzheimer's approvals. Now Medicare restricts who can take the drug, so only a limited number of patients are able to access Lakembi, as well as Agihelm for that matter. This is going to be a close race to watch. Both Eli Lilly and the ISI Biogen Partnership are trying to prove that their treatments improve cognitive function. When they win the FDA's full approval and expand access to more patients, that's when we'll see a clear frontrunner. Novo Nordisk is in hot water. A nonprofit doctors group is calling out Novo for a CBS 60 Minutes news segment, which they say was a little more than a dressed-up promotional plug for Novo's weight loss drug, Wagovi. 
The group is called Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. As Ben Adams reports, they have lodged a complaint with the FDA about this 60 Minutes news segment, which aired on New Year's Day. The Physicians Committee is also calling on CBS to remove the four online <clears throat> news segments promoting Novo Nordisk drugs and run a corrective ad to explain Wagovi's side effects. The Physicians Committee alleges that the 60 Minutes segment breached the FDA's fair balance rules for drug ads. The committee states that the segment used overly promotional language, failed to talk about weight loss alternatives, and did not fairly present information on side effects. The doctor's group also notes that the piece relied on experts that Novo Nordisk has paid. Novo Nordisk emailed Fierce Pharma's Ben Adams claiming that it did not provide any payment or sponsorship to CBS 60 Minutes and that it did not control any of the content or have a role in identifying or selecting the doctors and patients featured in the news segment. Well, that may be true, but Either way, the 60 Minutes team needed to ask a few more questions to vet their so-called unbiased experts. And if you're interested in more news on this topic, be sure to tune into The Top Line next week for an extensive discussion on obesity. Staff writer Fraser Kansteiner and managing editor Karita Anderson will talk about what's coming down the pike in terms of obesity drugs and what we can expect for 2023. Let's take a break from the headlines and dive deep into an important topic, the rising cost of prescription drugs. Lawmakers in the United States have pledged to fight high drug prices, and for years, most of those efforts didn't work. Until recently. Just last year, Congress passed the Inflation Reduction Act. The law contains several drug pricing measures hated by the pharmaceutical industry, including restrictions to price increases and Medicare negotiations. The conversation isn't over. The measures will continue to roll out over the coming years. And editor Eric Saganowski talked with Stacy Dusetzina about what we can expect. Stacy is a professor in the Department of Health Policy at Vanderbilt University. Here they are. Hi, Stacy. Thanks again for speaking with me about the important issue of drug pricing. 2022 is somewhat of a banner year on this issue after several years of standstill in Washington. This August, Congress and President Joe Biden passed the Inflation Reduction Act which includes several drug pricing measures set to roll out over the coming years. Those include limiting Medicare price hikes to the rate of inflation, capping out-of-pocket costs for Medicare recipients, and allowing Medicare to negotiate prices on certain high-cost pharmaceuticals. But as you and I have discussed, there are still some open questions about how this will all play out. So to start, can you tell me what do you think are some of the biggest unknowns in the drug pricing landscape as we get ready to head into 2023? Sure, and thanks for having me on the podcast. It's really great to be here. This is a huge set of policy changes. Like, it is the most meaningful set of changes to the Medicare Part D benefit since it was introduced uh, and started in 2006. And then the price negotiations, I know a lot of people are a little down on them because they focus only on older drugs. But, you know, it is a substantial change from being illegal to negotiate in the program to having the ability to negotiate even for a subset of drugs. You know, as far as unknowns are concerned, there are some implementation questions around the law and how that uh, specifically will be implemented. But I think one of the broader questions, at least some of the things I'll be interested in looking for, are what happens to new drug prices? 
Um, it's an area where that is one place that the law does not touch. Um, it focuses on negotiating prices for older drugs, limiting price increases for drugs that are already on the market, but doesn't touch new drug launch prices. So that, that I think, is one of the areas that I think will be specifically interesting to watch. I see. And going back to some of the changes in the Inflation Reduction Act, a lot of politicians you know, called these a breakthrough after years of standstill. But do you expect a lot of pricing relief for American patients? Absolutely. At least uh, for people who need high-priced drugs today. And when I say high-priced, I am typically talking about drugs that we would consider specialty drugs, those with prices of you know five or $10,000 per fill. For those patients, they're going to see massive price reductions at the pharmacy counter once the uh, Part D changes have been fully implemented. So they go from spending an unlimited amount of money out of pocket to spending $2,000 over the course of the year um, with a hard cap starting in 2025. Now, what happens to the average Part D consumer is not as clear. So the benefit design will be updated so that it is more streamlined. You pay a similar price from one fill to the next. But it's not clear yet whether plans will use coinsurance, a percentage of the list price for each of those fills, or if they'll use copays. And for preferred drugs today, there is a mix. So when you start filling your drugs at the beginning of the year, you're typically paying a flat copay, maybe $40 or $45 for your drug. And then later on, you shift into a coinsurance of about 25%. So there is kind of this outstanding question of what happens to brand name drug coverage under the Part D plans. Will everybody switch to copays or will they switch to coinsurance for the whole time? I see. And I know there are concerns, you mentioned them, about how price hike limitations could prompt pharma companies to raise their launch prices. Um, Do you think that's a possibility or a likelihood under this new law? You know, I, I think that it is a possibility. And in some cases, I think it's more likely than in others. Um, In particular, for drugs that have mandatory coverage, so the protected classes under Medicare Part D, those are things like cancer drugs, where we often don't have a lot of choices available either. And those drugs have had very high launch prices and like increasing launch prices over time. I think the outstanding question is whether those price increases or the launch price increases are much more than what we've seen in the past years. My guess would be that for products where there are other options or where PBMs could still exclude drugs due to formulary design, we would still see a lot of rebating. We won't we might see higher launch prices uh, in the prices we observe, the list prices, but we might not see as much of an impact on the net prices for those drugs where exclusions are allowed. And throughout this process, we've heard from pharma companies, uh, we've heard a lot of complaints um, about innovation and you know they're calling this price controls. So do you, do you now that this is a law, do you still expect that this will get resistance from the, from the pharma industry? You know, in the courts or in the rulemaking process? I'm sure that they are going to resist this as much as they can and, you know, kind of work to put pressure on um, CMS around rulemaking and also members of Congress around whether or not the the law 
actually goes into effect because we don't have negotiations starting until 2026. Some pieces of that will have to be pretty far along, like selecting of drugs that would be negotiated, but the actual negotiated prices don't come into play until much later. So, you know, I think the industry is going to respond every way possible to suggest that the law is having an effect, a negative effect on innovation and on new drug development. You know, in some cases, I think we do want to monitor carefully to make sure that drug development is not harmed. But we also have to recognize that patients' access to treatments have been harmed already by having very high prices, having them pay too much in cost sharing. And the negotiations go hand in hand with improving the benefit design. So in some ways, the industry is going to be better off because patients will have much better access to drugs and expensive drugs as well. I would say that I've spent probably since 2013 have been really, really focused on access to cancer drugs. You know, as a policy researcher, you don't ever, I mean, it's not that you don't expect that the work that you're doing might affect change and actually the types of changes that would really fix the problems. (laughs) And so you start to look at the history of drug policy and the same conversations were happening in the 80s. So I would say that the fact that it passed was actually a pretty huge shock, uh, given how many false starts we had. It's, It's a substantial change to policy. And I think the thing that is so such a relief to me is it fixes so many problems with the Medicare benefit that affect consumers. So we may see more people starting their medicines that weren't starting them before. We may see better adherence, so more sales of drugs. But I think that this is something that does need to be monitored carefully. But I think the industry uh, will certainly be taking advantage of any changes in drug development, for example, being pointed to as an effect of the uh, IRA. Yeah, and we've already seen some announcements that they're going to take a second look at drugs or certain indications. Do you think these are just companies being opportunistic to put this law in a bad light? There could be some of that going on. You know, I think one of the things that is important to keep in mind is we know drug development is a high-risk endeavor. We know that many products are discontinued before they get too far along the drug development pathway. So we know there is a lot of uh, discontinuing drug development along that pathway. I think it is pretty easy for the industry to say, you know, we've reassessed and we've decided to abandon this drug because of the Inflation Reduction Act. I think the important part for consumers to think about is, would that have been a drug that would have produced a substantial benefit? So often you hear this tension between people uh, on either side of this argument um, suggesting in some cases, well, we're going to lose cures. I, I would feel very that it's very unlikely we would be losing drugs that look substantially beneficial for patients. You know, companies still recognize that if they have a good drug, they can command a handsome reward for that drug. And, you know, even for small molecule products, there are nine years to, you know, 
be making a substantial amount of money. I do think that there will be conversation and efforts to point to the Inflation Reduction Act for killing off drugs that are in development, but I'm not sure how concerned we need to be about that uh, because I think maybe many of those products would not have made it much farther along in the first place. And focusing on the Medicare pricing negotiations, from my coverage, it seemed like this was the this was the area pharma disliked the most. So do you expect this to generate more uh, cost savings or more price reductions than other parts of the Inflation Reduction Act? Or is what do you think is the most significant part of the law? Oh, that that's a tough question. Uh, so I think that to me, from someone who studies beneficiary access as a key component, you know, I think that the changes to Medicare Part D are the piece that I'm, you know, most thrilled that we got with this law. Now, the industry is also thrilled with that. They've long been proponents of capping out-of-pocket costs on Part D. There, to my knowledge, there aren't really any constituents who are anti-improving Medicare Part D benefit design for patients. That said, you can't just make drugs much more affordable for people without changing how much we pay for some of those things. So those components that improve the Medicare Part D benefit and lower costs to beneficiaries are going to be costly to the Medicare program. So the savings to be able to do that come from limiting price hikes and negotiating the prices for some older drugs. You kind of need both of those in order to make it a package that doesn't just increase spending. I see. And is it possible that higher spending because of the out-of-pocket cap could drive premiums up? It's possible, but not in the short term. So the law also includes a provision that limits premium increases to 6% per year for the next six or so years, I believe. Um, So there is an effort to recognize that they are changing quite a lot about the benefit even the extent to which plans have more financial responsibility on the Part D benefit with the redesigned program. So they know that there are a lot of moving parts here. We have to see how the negotiations work out. We have to see what type of savings we get from the negotiation. And we need to see what the behavioral response is from patients. How many more drugs are they filling? What types of drugs are they filling? So recognizing that, the law does hold premiums steady. Now, the question will be, once we've gotten through that initial period, what do premiums look like? Now, there is a lot of pressure to compete on premiums because not everybody who's over the age of 65 is on Medicare Part D. So plans have a lot of incentives to try to offer $0 premium plans or very low cost plans to get people enrolled who may have pretty minor drug needs. And so far, we've only focused on Medicare. Um, there's a whole other commercial market. So is it is it possible or, or expected that we could see you know changes in the future in drug pricing for the commercial market? So from a legislative standpoint, I'm not sure how much movement we will see. You know, there has been some conversation about trying to do something around capping costs for insulin on the commercial market. That said, the Inflation Reduction Act and the way that the law was passed limited the scope to Medicare only. Now, there are also these kind of outstanding questions about 
does there end up, you know, do we have a spillover effect on all these actions that Medicare is taking around price negotiation? Does that spill over onto the commercial market and result in higher prices for commercially insured patients? And I think that it's unclear. You know, I, I think some recent evidence suggests there's not that much cost shifting that happens across, you know, the benefits. Um, when you have limits on payments in Medicare, you know, we know we pay more on commercially insur- uh, commercial insurance, but we don't know how much that might shift as a result of the law. Well, I guess my last question is, is there anything that's not being discussed uh, in the drug pricing world that you think that should get more consideration? Any proposals that aren't being considered enough? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I, I think a couple of things that I've been kind of thinking about a little bit lately are more on the physician or clinician administered drug side. Um, you know, I have heard from many people who need expensive drugs, who get those drugs through their clinician's offices, that their costs for those have increased pretty substantially over time. And so this is an area that I think is going to be of interest and where some of the newer price transparency data, the hospital transparency data in particular, might shed some light on patterns of, you know, how much people are spending on these uh, clinician-administered drugs, at least outside of um, Medicare. So, you know, that's an area that I think is of interest. Probably one of the papers I was most proud of completing was a study that came out in April of this year and which was actually used by the Biden administration to promote the law was that, you know, nearly 30% of people with cancer who had been prescribed a drug that would be covered under Part D were not filling that drug at all. Their physicians have decided that they need this treatment and then they have opted out of treatment. And just knowing like the effect that would have on a person, like the effect on your family, the effect on you personally, just mentally, emotionally. Definitely. You know, another one that I I have found to be pretty fascinating is the growing use of generic cost savings programs or uh, like Mark Cuban's Cost Plus Drugs Company, for example, as one way of addressing affordability and access to some types of drugs. And it's been interesting to me to see how those have expanded, but also thinking through the challenges of, you know, every time those initiatives try to move into more of the branded drug market, you kind of hit a wall because even if you negotiated or got a really low price on a brand name drug, typically that's still going to be too high for someone to pay cash for it. You know, I, I often, when I teach students, I'll say, like, how many people do you know who are over the age of 65 who have over $3,000 to fill their first prescription? And like, no one thinks that, you know, that that is reasonable, but that's what we ask people to do today. And once you start taking health insurance, you've added a bunch of administrative complexity. So I think that those are um, efforts that I'm finding to be really interesting to watch and really glad to see for consumers. But um, also, they highlight how complicated our drug pricing and reimbursement system is and uh, how much work there is to come. Well, we'll be following this as it plays out over the coming years. Thanks so much. Demand is high for Eli Lilly's diabetes drugs, and its manufacturing resources are stretched thin. 
But if Lily's newest diabetes drug, Munjaro, wins an expected approval to treat obesity, that demand will skyrocket. As Kevin Dunleavy reports, Eli Lilly is preparing. It is beefing up its manufacturing capacity. In North Carolina, Lilly is building a massive plant to churn out diabetes meds. And it's the plant that just keeps growing. Lilly began construction of the factory in 2020 with the plan to spend $474 million and have 462 employees. But on Tuesday, Eli Lilly released a press release saying it had plans to invest another $450 million and add at least 100 more workers at the site. But its diabetes meds are selling so fast that Lilly's plans can't keep up with the pace. In fact, Lilly has adjusted its vision for the factory so many times that it has now committed to invest a total of $1.7 billion there. A steady stream of biotech layoffs have continued into January. For example, Finch Therapeutics released an announcement on Tuesday saying that it would be letting go of 95% of its staff and stopping all development work while it seeks out potential buyers for its assets. As Nick Paul Taylor reports, it's not the first time Finch has had to make tough decisions. In fact, it already shrunk its workforce by a third last year. But this week's announcement means Finch has given up on developing its drug CP101. For a while, things had been looking good for the therapy, especially after Finch had been able to get a phase three trial back on track after some pandemic-related delays. But the announcement from Finch explained that slow enrollment in the trial, as well as difficulty securing the money or partnerships needed to take the drug forward, meant it had reached the end of the road. We're keeping track of all the layoffs at Fierce Biotech's 2023 layoff tracker, which you can find in our show notes. After the highs of 2021, the biotech industry is headed into 2022 with abundance. Maybe too much abundance. Too many biotechs, too many candidates in development, and, as we just learned, too many employees. Here to talk about last year and our expectation for this year, are Annalie Armstrong and Gabrielle Mason from our Fierce Biotech team. So last year was brutal for biotech. Um, We're obviously kicking off 2023 on shaky footing. We saw so many companies operating on razor-thin margins, a lot of pipeline programs getting the boot, and of course, the seemingly never-ending wave of layoffs. Let's start with those. For our 2023 forecast piece, Annalie, that you, Max, and I wrote, we found that experts are kind of split on whether the pace of layoffs will slow down. Eric Celadano, founder and managing director of recruiting firm SciBio, he said that he expected the layoffs to continue through this year. Has that proved true or what have we seen so far? Yeah, so we retired our layoff tracker um, early this year with a hopeful view that things would slow down, but that just has not happened. We ended up having to bring it back within a week, which was not our plan, um, but we had something like six layoffs happen right away. So we just decided this was a trend that's that's going to keep going and, and we wanted to keep recording those. So just briefly looking back at the end of last year, we actually saw the largest single month of cuts in November with 23 companies reporting a layoff. So that was a huge uh, jump after, you know, a year where we did see steady layoffs, but that one was a real standout. And yeah, you know, the trend really hasn't changed. You know, I guess it's not that surprising to see companies making cuts in the first weeks of the year because 
they're now looking at those fourth quarter numbers and, and you know, seeing where they need to make cuts. Yeah, that, that makes sense. A, a, a big one was Editas. Yeah, that wasn't really a surprise since they ditched their lead candidate last year. But there's so much interest in gene editing that the 20% staff cuts and pipeline reprioritization is pretty notable. They very quickly found a home for their natural killer cell programs with Shoreline Biosciences. So hopefully that helps them get things back on track. Okay, so unfortunately, we're, it sounds like we're still seeing a lot of layoffs. Um, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about, you know, the plethora of pipeline calls that we saw. At the end of the year, I spoke with Poseida Therapeutics CEO Mark Gergen, who he had some interesting comments about the widespread cuts. He said as the interest in COVID vaccines kind of spilled over across the industry, um, it led to many things getting funded that maybe shouldn't have been funded. He cited gene therapy as one of the best examples, you know, as an extremely overcrowded space right now with a lot of companies working on similar tech. Yeah, Leslie Loveless, an executive recruiter from Sloan Partners, told me the same thing, basically. She called this a right-sizing. So ultimately, it seems a lot of people kind of think that the calls were almost due in certain time. Um, this upcoming earnings season should probably tell us um, more if the trend kind of is continuing into 2023, since the news of many programs being put on the chopping block are announced alongside those quarterly earnings. In general, when just kind of looking at the market overall, Eric told us it's still a decent market and it's decent for one reason. It's that big farm is flush with cash and they're still hiring. So they've obviously kept this party going. When I was at um, the JP Morgan annual conference this year, lots of people kind of echoed that sentiment. But I also heard quite a few people actually saying that it was more two-sided than that. Um, that pharma also has a dependency on biotech. I'm curious, Annalie, what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, so we know that pharma is on the hunt to stock their pipelines. If they don't have breakthroughs in-house, they've got to find that somewhere. And of course, it's going to be biotech. After a year without a lot of M&A, it stands to reason that we're going to see some deals this year. All those pipeline cuts hopefully mean that the best stuff is on full display now. And hopefully there were some pretty fruitful meetings that happened at JPM. And, you know, we could see some deals a couple months down the road once those uh, are all figured out. Yeah, definitely. I, I think a lot of people were waiting to see if M&A picked up at JPM this year. Yeah, usually the conference starts off with like a huge deal announcement. We, we obviously didn't get that. We did have a couple of acquisitions that were maybe more on the pharma side. Um, and then on the biotech side of the world, it was a lot of licensing deals, just like last year. Um, but actually, interestingly, since the conference ended, we've actually seen four small biotech consolidations. So small company buying small company to survive. Um, so that could be the 2023 trend that's already emerging this early. Yeah, only time will tell. I mean, 2022 was certainly a wild ride. And while, you know, there are sparks of life returning to the market, biotech may still be in for a rocky road this year. We'll have to see. Yeah, hopefully we will uh, have a different conversation in, in uh, 2024 and, and see a little bit more of a bright light. Fingers crossed. That's it for The Top Line. I'm Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodson. You can find out more about these topics in our show notes at FiercePharma.com. Look for podcasts. And that's the bottom line from The Top Line.